As the demand for telemedicine grows, so does the need for connectivity. 5G meets that need. Qualcomm remains focused on giving doctors and patients superior, security-rich 5G connectivity. Learn more at qualcomm.com slash inventionage. Conservatives, which generally Republicans, say there's no such thing as global warming because they make a lot of money in oil. And then the liberals say, oh, we've got to stop fossil fuels. And so what happens, the issue of global warming gets drowned out. You know, what's really happening? So our program today is, as you may have heard, unless you're living under a rock, some of the biggest fires in the world just took place up near Fort McMurray, Canada, which has oil. And some of the, it's generally a wet area, a lot of beautiful trees up there. So I know some of you are saying, well, that's I've heard all this story before. But let me explain something to you. It will and it is affecting you today. So today we're going to talk about what does global warming mean, how is it created, and how it's going to affect you one way or the other unless you're living on Mars. Okay. So Kim and I were just in San Diego. I did a TED Talk there. And most of these guys were scientists in front of me. And one of them was a jet, NASA Jet Propulsion Laboratory scientist. And she explained what global warming is like I have never heard before. And I understand it now, and I understand the reason we should be paying attention because it's not going to stop. It's only going to get worse. So what happened in Fort McMurray in the what they used to call Fort McMoney, oil sands, timber, beautiful country. It burned down. Now you can say, well, it's not going to happen to me. You know, That's like when people say, well, my, my kid goes to a great school. Everybody else goes to bad schools. They, they just want to deny, deny, deny. So, Kim, why don't you tell them about that demonstration of the two balloons that explains global warming? Well, very very simply, the, the demonstration was, you know, imagine two balloons being suspended on a rod. One balloon has nothing in it but air. The other balloon is filled with water. And the scientist took a flame and she held it. A barbecue letter. You know, <laughs> yeah. The, like, uh, yeah. A barbecue letter. <clears throat> barbecue letter. And she held, it under, she held it under the balloon with air and, of course, it pops. Then she takes the same lighter and she puts it to the balloon with the water and nothing happens. And these are regular party store balloons. Nothing special about them. And then she shows a video and she has a flamethrower that she has uh, put to this balloon and it still doesn't pop. And what she explained is that water is a great absorbent of heat, and it has a high tolerance for heat. So the water actually absorbs the heat. And then she explained that this is what's happening with global warming, all the pollution, all the carbon dioxide, everything we're throwing into the air, all the heating up that's happening, the oceans are absorbing it. And this is what is creating the global warming. And what there was another scientist uh, got up there, and he says the fossil fuels we burn today— will take a hundred years to leave, to dissipate out. So he says, we're not doing anything about it, so everything we're doing today is only going to increase global warming because our oceans are warming. I tell you, it's pretty dramatic to see this little rubber balloon filled with water, and this guy throws a flamethrower on it, and it doesn't even pop. It's this rubber balloon. 
but the water absorbs all that heat. And that's what's going on as we speak today. So all of you contrarians out there, your Republicans and conservatives, saying, ah, there's nothing as global warming. I would pay attention because our guests today are going to talk about what happened at Fort McMurray. They got burned out. They're out of business. It's multi-generational. It'll be years before they can move back in there, or at least a year or so before they can rebuild. So all of you out there who say, well, there's, I'm a Republican, and I know the Republican Party will protect me. Listen up. So Darren Weeks is one of the Rich Dad Advisors. He's a great guy. He teaches cash flow games all over Canada. I don't think there's anybody who's taught more people to play cash flow than Darren Weeks. And he lives up in Canada, and he took in a whole bunch of people from Fort McMurray. He has a lot of friends in Fort McMurray. So first will be Darren, and then Riel Chartrand and his wife Sheila will also be on this program. And they'll be telling you what it's like to live through an inferno and what what it feels like to lose everything, including their daughter and granddaughter. Nobody was killed, thank God, but they lost everything else material. So, Darren, welcome to the program, and what do you want to say about this whole Canadian affair up in uh, Fort McMurray? Well, it's kind of like you said, most people just bury their hand, their head in the sand and everything that's going to happen to them. Um, you know, a couple of years ago, a smaller town in, in Alberta, most of it burned down, but nobody ever would have thought, you know, a town of almost 100,000 people would have such devastation, and it's uh, it's been a huge impact. So it was scary, and, you know, all I could do is just have some compassion for people and think about what they're going through. So we just try to reach out and help as many people as possible from Fort Murray. They've been great Rich Dad fa- fans and fans of mine for years. So we just did what we could when the, the time was and necessary. You actually took in a lot of people, correct? Yeah, when I built my office in 2008, the second floor is basically just where we play cash flow games. So we just took all the tables out, we moved everything away, we had uh, air mattresses brought in, and we basically cleared out all the offices so we could fit. Um, about 20 people were at, at the office for about a week staying there. And we just, you know, took in whoever wanted to come that needed a place to stay. Because they literally had nothing. They had five minutes to evacuate. So they had nothing with them. And and how many people in the town of Fort McMurray? Well, Riel could probably talk that better. I think it was okay. 80,000 that lived there. But there's also thousands of workers in camps. So, you know, probably 100,000 people anyway. And it, it's totally gone. They say 10% of the structures are gone. But everybody had to evacuate within, you know, literally minutes. The whole town was under under siege. So, Riel, would you mind tell us what it's like to live in a town of 90,000 and have to evacuate and lose it? Well, everything was normal, and there was a few fires that started. I was at a trade show with my daughter. We were promoting her business. And at about 3 o'clock in the afternoon, there was three fires that started around the city. They were able to extinguish a few uh, right away, but uh, with the manpower that they had there, uh, it was hard to, for them to get to all, all three of them. So the next morning, uh, the fires were basically under control, and all of a sudden the winds changed and they started to pick up, and uh, the, the large fire just west of the city uh, began to really expand at a rapid pace. Uh, my wife and I, we were in town doing some normal shopping and things that we had to do, and uh, around 3 in the afternoon, my wife and daughter had gone home, and I was still in town. And it was right, it had started to burn part of the city on the, uh, on the west side. I, I was on the highway, and there was flankers flying across the road. Uh, a service station and a, a Super 8 motel was in flames. Uh, the fire had crossed the highway. There was flankers flying all over. I could barely see. Just as you were driving about, home. 
as I was driving, I had to get out of there or else I would have been caught in it, right? Wow. So I'm driving through that, and it's uh, it's super black because of the smoke. I was just hoping nobody would be, was in front of me because I had to keep on going. And there was people on both sides of the road trying to help each other. Some people were driving across the meridian, the ditch. It was total chaos to try to get the heck out of there, right, because the fire was on both sides of the highway. And finally I got out and uh, headed home and hoping, you know, there's no way I could just stay there because I was useless there. Uh, the fire was just ravaging through through the area. So I went home, and at that point, the fire was still about uh, 17 kilometers, which is about 10, 11 miles away from, uh, from my home. The fire went down into the valley and just wiped out two areas. The day that happened, Sheila and I, we left with our daughter, and we went about uh, 30 kilometers south of town, and we stayed there overnight. The next morning, we decided to, what, what, what are we going to do? We can't just stay here. we got to go help. So what we did is I drove back towards town. They stopped us on uh, Highway 63 and 81, which is a main junction, and we uh, told the uh, emergency services there that we could help by going back home, getting our big five-ton truck, loading it up with food, and we could go uh, feed some of the guys that had been working 24, 36 hours straight. So that's what we did. We ended up going home. We packed up the truck as much as we get, we could with all our equipment. And uh, Sheila packed up a few other things that she had missed in the house. And, of course, now there's no way we thought it was, our house was going to burn down. So if we, knowing, looking behind, she would have packed away more because I had a, a 16-foot covered trailer that we could have filled up. But instead, we chose to go help the firemen and the uh, firefighters, and we went to the airport, fed those guys there. They hadn't ate for a long time. Uh, we got booted out of there because the fire was coming towards uh, our area. Well, that's a terrifying, horrifying experience. Once again, it's Robert Kiyosaki, the Rich Night Radio Show, the good news and bad news about money. And today we're talking to Riel Chartrand and his wife, Sheila, as well as Darren Wakes from Canada. And, you know, yeah, also, you know, we talk about being prepared for whatever happens. We've talked about being prepared for economic changes. We talk about being prepared for financial changes, all of this. But being prepared for something so unexpected, and I want to, when we come back, I want to talk to Rial and Sheila about, you know, were they prepared in terms of they've, they've lost their business, they've lost their home. What what and we've got preparation that, did they have? The reason they have so much food is because they're in the catering business. Yeah, so they right. basically gave their business away to help their fellow, you know, people live up there. So when we come back, we'll be talking more about global warming. I want to just remind you of this one more time. At the TED Talk in San Diego, this one NASA Jet Propulsion Laboratory, scientists has held up two balloons, one filled with air, one filled with water. She got one of those barbecue letters, and she hit the one filled with air, and it popped immediately. But the one filled with water never burned. And what she was saying is that our oceans every day are getting warmer, warmer, and warmer. Because they're absorbing all that heat. And all of us are somehow affected, even if you're a Republican, by (laughs) water and the oceans. And also the other, there was another scientist got up there, and he says, every day, all the fuel we burn today— that heat will not dissipate for 100 years. And yet, instead of fixing the problem, we have conservatives versus liberals, Republicans versus Democrats, and they're trying to argue whether or not there's global warming enough. 
And today we're talking about, for all you doubters out there, about global warming. As I said before, the Republicans say there's no such thing because they all protect oil. And the Democrats and the liberals say, well, it's coming. And I said, Kim and I were in San Diego at the TED Talks. I'll let Kim explain the demonstration one more time because it was very clear demonstration. Yeah, it was very simple. It was just simply two balloons, one filled with air, one filled with water. Uh, The scientists took a a lighter, like you light a barbecue, held it under the the balloon with air, and it popped. Held it under the balloon with water, and nothing happened. Then she had a flamethrower, a video of her with a flamethrower with a balloon with water, nothing popped. And what she said is water absorbs heat, and it has a very high tolerance for it. So all of the pollution that we're putting into the air, all of the carbon dioxide, all of that, the oceans are absorbing all that heat, and that's one of the main factors of global warming. So all you guys with Malibu beachfront property, (laughs) I would start dumping it right now, and that's what I'm trying to say to you. I would think, I mean, Kim and I talk about it all the time, because we live in Hawaii. Like I said, our our property used to be beachfront. Now it's oceanfront. There's a very big difference between beachfront and oceanfront. And today we're talking to Darren Weeks, who's a rich dad advisor. He's an entrepreneur, real estate investor. His website is FastTrackToCashFlow.com. And he has probably taught more people the cash flow game than any other single person in history. And we have Riel Chartrand, excuse me, and his wife, Sheila. And they just recently lost everything, along with her daughter, her husband, and their little baby. Who lost their business and their home as well. At Fort McMurray, which used to be called... Fort McMoney because that's where the oil was. And maybe it's a prophecy or a tap on the shoulder from God saying, hey, start, stop drilling that oil stuff, you know, and start shifting to fossil, I mean, to natural fuels. But anyway, whatever the story is, we have Riel and his wife, Sheila, and they're telling their story. But more, you know, the story is exciting, but I want to get to the lessons. What lessons and how does a person prepare? One more thing is that there was a book called Crash Course by Chris Martinson, and he says what happens is the change is going to come in a second. You won't even realize it. He says you'll be sitting there fat, dumb, and happy, and then the next moment, boom, it hits you. So I'd like to ask um, first, Darren, what was it like for you when you realized you know, your friends were burning up in Fort McMurray? Well, I think... You know, there's, there's great government agencies that do great work. So when we heard this was occurring, you know, we took we took action really quickly. And I just gathered around some of the people I met actually playing cash over the years. My network was pretty strong with entrepreneurs. And we just tried to solve the problems. I'm not saying the government wouldn't do it, but we wanted to make sure things were done very, very quickly and not have people like Riel and, and Sheila, you know, friends, get caught in the bureaucracy. So literally within 12 hours, we had a foundation set up. My office was cleared out. We had sleeping bags. We had air mattresses. We had food and toiletries all ready to go. Some of my friends, entrepreneurs, they had taxis so they could drive people from the airport when they landed. We, you know, we had food. I mean, just whatever you needed. We had trailers in my parking lot, barbecues, like just whatever you needed. We had it. It was it was done, you know, really, really quick. And uh, we just did the best we can just to help out uh, fill business people. So that's, that's all we do is try to help because I can't imagine the devastation they went through. So, uh, Riel and Sheila, let me ask Sheila. Sheila, what you know? You you had a catering business. What lessons did you learn, and how do you plan to restart? I mean, there's two questions really, but what lesson would you share with people? I would say one of the uh, major lessons uh, for anybody really is you have to prepare for anything throughout your entire lifetime, and we're always students. We're always learning. 
Uh, we had a scare last summer with a fire that was burning close to our home in Sapray Creek uh, to the point where our community was under voluntary evacuation. So at that moment, the terror is just going through you and you're looking around your house. In my particular case, it was 47 years of, of memories and things and uh, really we were looking at each other saying we need to get out of here and outside of grabbing some personal information like your your my purse with my driver's license uh you know some kind of documentation and whatnot and our kids really nothing else mattered so i i highly suggest anybody uh at this moment right now go over their insurance policies our insurance company has been amazing to deal with. Um, basically, we had instant access to them. Uh, with other things that I've seen through social media, uh, most people had incredible insurance companies that they were dealing with where they walked into the office and here's a check for $2,000 or here's a check for $5,000, you know, whatever you need. Unfortunately, there were a lot of people that did not have insurance, so that was not the case. Um, thank goodness for organizations such as the Canadian Red Cross, where they've really stepped up to the plate and they were helping people. Uh, in our particular situation, what I have found, uh, definitely family is everything. While it is heartbreaking to lose your home, it is heartbreaking to lose your business uh, to the point where... I mean, throughout this experience, we've both really stumbled and fallen down and had to pick each other up, had to, had to be there for our kids. You have to be strong throughout this, and it's definitely easier said than done. Let me, let me ask you this, um, Sheila or, or Real. Um, do you plan to rebuild your business? How, how will you determine what you're, what you're going to do next? Well, for us personally, it's unknown. Um, as our, our home was destroyed as well, our insurance company has said we're looking at a minimum of two years, you know, before our house could be rebuilt to, you know, to the splendor that it was, so to speak. Uh, I feel personally that my fate right now lies in the hands of our daughter, Callie, and her husband, Alex. Uh, yes, they do have a 20-month-old I call her my little honey bunny, our little granddaughter, but she's also in uh, five weeks' time expecting another one. Oh, my goodness. So our priority has been to get them set up, to get them with everything they need for the, for the arrival of the new baby as well. So at this point, I can't say uh, if we will restart our catering company. Um, I know we would be very missed in our community and our entire city if we did not. I loved what I did. I loved helping people. Uh, had, had we done things differently and gone back and let's say loaded the contents of our house and our daughter's house as opposed to the food that we served these crews, I wouldn't have changed anything. I would have still made that decision. Even if I knew my house was gonna burn down, uh, the human spirit that we saw throughout this was incredible and it really makes you appreciate the small things in life. On the third day of the evacuation, 
one of our neighbors in Sapra Creek, we were at the Hanging Stone Campground, she offered us a cup of coffee. And that was our first cup of coffee that we had had in three days. And it was the best cup of coffee of my I life. Bet. I bet. <laughs> well, thank you. Once again, it's Robert Kiyosaki, the Rich Dad Radio Show. We're talking about the massive wildfires that they had up in Fort McMurray, Canada, but more it's about you. And as we speak right now, our oceans are absorbing more and more heat. So what this means is if you're living you know, anywhere in the world, it's going to affect you one way or the other. And it's already affecting crops because they can't grow enough food because of this erratic uh, shifts in weather and all this. So we're talking to Riel Chartran and his wife, Sheila. They lost everything. Their daughter and her husband lost everything, but now they're rebuilding. And thank God they had insurance. And and one of the lessons I'm learning as I listen to Rayal and, and Sheila um, is, I I don't think I don't think about preparing for a fire or a flood or a hurricane. I don't I don't really. It's not in my mind. And now I'm like, this is something else that we need to prepare for. And I think Sheila said it. One one thing I, you can do is. I want you to know, Kim doesn't, I think about it. I have food stored all well, over Well, I mean, I, we think about that. It's another preparation in terms, and Sheila said it very well. She needed the insurance. And, and ask yourself, do you have the proper insurance? And, and pay attention to your insurance because we had to go through this process, and we looked at our insurance, and it was a mess. We had somebody, thank goodness, who figured it out for us and, and corrected it. But um, you really got to pay attention to that. It's important. It could be your livelihood. So, Darren, what else would you recommend for entrepreneurs to prepare for whatever might happen? Because this world is going chaotic pretty quickly. The, the big difference I saw when the people that visited our office to stay here for you know one night or, or a week or so is the people that were entrepreneurs, they, they had a completely different attitude. And the people that were the employees, and of course this is a generalization, but the people that are employees, like they had no plans, they had no basically no financial backup, they didn't know what to do, they were relying on other people. And the entrepreneurs, they, they already had a network of other entrepreneurs where they could, you know, kind of rely on them as almost like their second family. So that was the biggest thing I saw. So I just encourage people to become an entrepreneur, and you're going to gain skills that you wouldn't gain typically if you just have a job. And those skills can help you in these types of situations, in my opinion. And your website is FastTrackToCashFlow.com. He has great entrepreneurial training programs. He teaches the cash flow game. It's like nobody has taught more people the cash flow game than Darren Weeks. And he's changed the culture of Canada. And when Fort McMurray would hit a lot of friends and clients, should, should I say, that they all, you know, Darren then supported them to come and live at his house. And really that's what the power of the human spirit is. Let me ask, Rael, what, what, what advice would you give to people in hindsight? The best thing to prepare for is when you see warnings like that, the fire being that close, start taking action immediately by uh, gathering all your important uh, papers, such as your passport, driver's license, any kind of identification. All your, for me, it was to grab my, uh, all my business investments, which I got most of them, because that's what's going to keep me going as an entrepreneur. Uh, I think you should make a list of everything that you purchase that's worth value and have a running tab on it on your computer. That's one thing we grabbed, my wife grabbed right away, was the computers and, and all the hardware and software. So that can keep you going for a very long time, and at least you don't lose those records. All right. Uh, the other thing is, the other thing that I wanted to let you know, Robert, is I went to a garage sale on the weekend. The very first book I bought was Rich Dad, Poor Dad. <laughs> <laughs> Good purchase. Can you believe it? <laughs> Good purchase. Well, that was my one. I like that. that. I'll... Rich Dad, 
Chris Dad, Poor Dad changed my life a lot since 2008, so I highly respect you and your wife, uh, Kim. I've read all your books. Thank you. What we're talking about is how global warming, even though the Republicans deny it exists, is going to affect all of us anyway. So you may as well be prepared. So that's why Kim and I have been talking about selling our beachfront properties because <laughs> they used to be beachfront, now they're oceanfront in right. Hawaii. And you know, people say, well, the oceans aren't rising. And these are my friends. I said, you see that over there? That used to be beach. <laughs> yep. No, 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 no. All my Republican friends in Hawaii, no, 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 no. That's just a high tide. <laughs> <laughs> so our next guest is Dr. Kent Moore. He's the executive chair of the Money Map Global Energy Symposium. He's the author of The Vega Factor, Oil Volatility, and the Next Global Crisis, and, is, and The Great Game, The Coming Face-Off for Global Supremacy, which came out in 2014. He has newsletters, Oil and Energy Investor, Energy Advantage Investor. So I want to welcome Dr. Kent Moores. He's going to talk about what happened in Canada, but more how it affects the whole world. Because everybody burns oil, including the petrol dollar, which the U.S. dollar is, but how it's going to affect all of us in the future and how we might invest into it. So welcome to the program, Dr. Kent Morris. Well, thank you. What did, what did you think of this Canadian fire? Well, I think it's one of the great natural tragedies of, we, of recent years, and it's a lot worse than people thought it would be. In other words, most people thought it would be contained by this point. Now, the situation has been centered around Fort McMurray, and that's the Athabasca Basin. And if you've ever been up there, in fact, you get up there on a single road north of Edmonton, which at one point had the highest fatalities of any road in the world uh, because it was a two-lane highway, and late at night you'd be coming around to Ben, and you'd have some oil equipment coming in the other direction. So it was also a very dangerous place to get to. They've now extended the road, so that's a little easier. But when you get to the Athabasca, what you recognize is that this is a huge, now this is oil sands. This is a huge mammoth project. Um, and it is one that is clearly out in the wilderness, which means that when you get a, uh, a wildfire like this one, it tends to engulf it rather quickly. This one is now moving rapidly east, and so most people anticipate it will be going into the oil regions in Saskatchewan in short order. What I'm looking at now is whether it extends um, further uh, south. You have to understand there are, at last count, 49 separate fires going on here. And they're not all centered in Fort McMurray, although that's where the major impact uh, has been. Uh, south of this area, as you get further to the American border, you have what's called the Albertan Bakken, which is the Canadian or northern side of the Bakken Basin in North Dakota and Montana in the U.S. If we start having fire-related problems there, then the about one million barrels of crude oil that the fire thus far has effectively withheld from the market is going to get higher. Uh, so the impact's going to be great. So, Dr. Ken, I, I heard uh, to that point that actually the price of oil went up because of these fires. Is that correct? Yes, it did, although there are other factors uh, in this as well. Uh, which most people don't recognize. Um, the net impact, uh, the, the oil price is determined globally. It is no longer determined by the so-called developed countries. It hasn't been determined by North America or by Western Europe for some time. So when you have a situation uh, in Canada or if you have a situation in the United States where we have unconventional producers, crude and 
tight oil producers declining their production because of the low price and because of the debt encumbrances that companies are experiencing here and so on. Uh, the automatic assumption is that's bound to allow prices to pop internationally. That's the case only if it impacts on oil that is likely to be exported in short order. Now, we finally are allowed to export crude oil from the United States. Congress made that decision several months ago. But it takes a while to set up that, that infrastructure. And so right now, North, uh, uh, the United States in particular, impacts the oil price only in terms of how much imports we're likely to get on any given day. And in Canada, the exports are essentially determined by what the, the surplus requirements are worldwide. Remember that what you get out of the oil sands is very inferior grade oil. It has to be upgraded. So if it's going to be exported, it's going to be exported at significant discount to regular crude. So as the crude oil uh, price in Western Canada goes down, it's of a, a potential benefit to refiners across the border in the United States because they can now purchase, quote-unquote, import oil from uh, Canada. That's less expensive than it would be domestically. So this is a far broader picture uh, than simply assuming that um, – uh, the fires themselves are having a primary impact. Right now, if you consider all of the impacts worldwide, we have almost 4 million barrels a day that have been taken out of the market. And that's the primary reason why we're seeing a spike in prices. They've been taken out of the market? Yes. By, by what? We've had, we've had the fire. We've had uh, renewed civil war in Libya. We have some significant difficulties in the Nigerian Niger Delta where insurgents have been taking over oil facilities and major companies like uh, um, Shell, for example, have been cutting back their production because they no longer can uh, guarantee the security of, of, of their own infrastructure. So let me, let me ask you this, uh, Dr. Kent Moores. You wrote, you're the author of The Vega Factor and Oil Volatility and the Next Global Crisis. In a thumbnail, can you give us what you see coming? Now, things are a little different than when I wrote that book. Uh, but what's coming here is, number one, we are rapidly seeing the development of a global energy balance. The difference here is when we took a look at global balances in the past, we looked only at supply and demand. What we have to look at now is demand on the one hand and extractable excess supply on the other. Everybody knows there's far more oil in the ground that is easily retrievable than the market needs. So it's no longer a question of supply versus demand in the market. It's a question of traders looking at if the demand increases or if the price increases too much, how much of this additional volume can come on the market in short order. So that's number one. Number two, I still see the price averaging around $50 a barrel in New York for WTI by the time we get to the mid to late June. And the reason for that is we're going to start leveling off here. And some of these difficulties are, are going to start improving. In other words, we're going to have another brokered accord in Libya. At some point, they're going to be able to control the fires in Canada. And so as a result, some of these concerns are going to dissipate a bit. And we're going to see the prices leveling off. Now, most people out there say the major ingredient right now is renewed Iranian volume coming into the market. And here we've had real contradictory uh, signals coming from Tehran. The deputy oil minister said that they were going to increase their exports to 2.3 million barrels a day come midsummer, from about 2 million right now. On the other hand, we had the official um, government 
news agency indicate that they uh, expected Iran to be reducing its production by anywhere from 100,000 to 400,000 or more barrels a day. So there's very conflicting signals here. The bottom line is simply this. The Iranians are going to be able to inject a considerable amount of new oil into the market short term, but they're not going to be able to sustain it. Uh, their field problems, their infrastructure problems, their financing problems are acute. And so any sh short pop from Iran is not going to be followed by any long-term increase in Iranian production unless they get significant foreign involvement and significant foreign capital coming in. They need the expertise and they need the money. We've set up three meetings in London over the past four months or so to try to begin this process. And on each, in each uh, occasion, Tehran has canceled the meetings because they can't get political consensus at home. So when people talk about geopolitical impacts on oil, uh, I want people to remember this is not the exception to the rule. This is becoming the normal operation. And that's going to allow us, I think, whether we get to 60 or $70 by the end of this year, I think, remains to be seen. But we're developing a floor here, and the floor is more important than the ceiling. How is this Canadian oil fires, I mean, Canadian fires going to affect the U.S. oil industry and the U.S. economy? Does it have any, any impact at all since we're basically in North America? Right. We may have, it may have an impact here short term, but we have the advantage of turning to a lot of pent-up domestic extractable reserves in the U.S. to offset any decline in imports from Canada. Now, we do have several of the major refiners, both associated with vertical oil companies and independent refiners, in the Midwest U.S. that had already spent a considerable amount of money to retool so that they could upgrade the inferior grade of, of crude coming down from Canada. And that was all figured into their overall um, profit balance, into their refinery margins, which is actually where they make their profit essentially the difference between what it costs them to produce and what they get at the first wholesale level, which is the rack price. Uh, given the fact that the discounted Canadian oil will not be coming down uh, as long as this fire survives, that may adversely impact some of these refineries. But beyond that, we're not going to see any shortage in the U.S., and it's not really going to have any appreciable impact on prices. Okay, so the U.S. has, can we go to energy neutral or we have enough oil in the U.S.? I would think so, yes. You see, here's the point. At uh, We're pushing 50 now. We're probably about $48 a barrel at the moment. At that price, most of the pent-up new shale production still couldn't come online very easily because it's going to require a sustainable price in the neighborhood of 60 to $62 a barrel to make most of that profitable. On the other hand, and, th and that's because have, it's so expensive to get it out of the ground so and to process it. To get it out of the ground, okay. absolutely. I'll just give you a very simple example. Um, some of the projects that I advise on, in the Eagle Ford, which is about 12,000 feet down in South Texas, in the Eagle Ford, if you uh, spot a well, you're going to be going down to a point where it may cost you six to eight million dollars per well. Now, if you hit oil, you tend to have far more oil than a normal well is going to give you, and you also have that uh, production curve occurring a lot quicker than normal. 
which means that you're going to get your primary production out in about the first 18 months. Then it's going to start declining. On the other hand, if you go to other places, for example, some of the uh, developments in uh, the Permian Basin in West Texas and, and eastern uh, New Mexico, or even in some of the more traditional shallower developments in East Texas, you can drill a well uh, for a lot less. In fact, and some of these can come in well below $700,000 a well and still get sufficient oil out at a more shallower, from a more shallower well at a much lower price, much lower cost uh, for the production. So that's another balance that's going on in the market. Uh, some places, like the Permium, are surviving better than others because some of these uh, basins simply require uh, more expense per well. So if I'm going into the Permian and I'm able to drill at less than $700,000 a well, I could go in and drill 10 wells and still make a profit if three of them were dry holes. If I go down to, to uh, down into South Texas and uh, to Eagle Ford and I uh, drill 10 wells and three of them come up dry holes, I go bankrupt. I mean, that's, that's simply okay. too expensive. All Remember, right. most, of, most of these companies have been running cash poor now for years and years and years. And at $70, $80, $90 a barrel didn't make any difference. You'd simply run your current and forward operating costs out of uh, – you just rolled over the debt you currently have, and that would be fine. But now we're in a situation where that high-risk energy debt is among the worst prospects that banks can look at. And companies are looking at the likelihood of having to pay in excess of 20% APR to continue to roll over that debt. And that's simply not sustainable in these pricing environments. So a lot of these companies are getting caught between a rock and a hard place. Because it's really not about oil or anything like that in Canada or fires. It's about being prepared. And that's the, that is the theme of today's show. And anybody who wants to submit a question to Ask Robert, you go to askrobert at richdadradio.com. We, don't, we can't answer all the questions, but we'll answer the questions that more fit the theme of the show. So once again, I want to thank Dr. Kent Moores. He's the author of The Vega Factor, Oil Volatility and the Next Oil Crisis. And also his newsletters are Oil and Energy Investor, Energy Advantage Investor. His website is kentmoores.com. Darren Weeks, entrepreneur and real estate investor from Canada. His website is FastTrackToCashFlow.com. And Riel Chartran, his wife Sheila, who recently lost much of their businesses in Fort McMurray. So, Melissa, what's the first question? Our first question today comes from Michael in Phoenix, Arizona. Favorite book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. His question is this. What does being prepared mean? Well, that's a fabulous question. You know, it's one of the worst things a person can do is go to school and think they're prepared. <laughs> I think that's ridiculous because I didn't learn stuff. I didn't learn much in school. But in the military, I learned a lot. And there, as a pilot, we were taught in flight school in Pensacola and in California, we were taught this idea of a called a redundant system, that all systems are redundant. We have a backup. So, for example, on the aircraft, we have dual fuel, we have dual fuel, tanks, fuel tanks. So in case one tank gets shot, we had another fuel tank. We just switched tanks right away. We also have dual hydraulic systems. We have everything is backed up. And it's the way I was trained to think as a military person. So that's why when Kim you know, Kim knows, we back up everything at our house, right? Yep, we do. We have we have backup food, we have backup generators, we have backup water, we yes, we do. And we have backup, backup houses. Is a, <laughs> yeah. 
But the other thing we back up is since I don't have we don't have much money in the bank because I don't trust the banks not at this time anyway. We have food everywhere. We also also talk about you know if everything goes to hell, which I hope it doesn't. There's four precious metals: gold, silver, guns, and bullets. So that's also all redundant thinkings, and that's why I sleep well at night during the what do you call that Y2K thing, which was the 2000. I didn't know if it was going to happen or not, so I just went down to Costco or wherever I went to and loaded up on food, rented a storage unit, loaded the food into the storage unit, and after years, nothing happened. I took that food down to the food bank and just gave it away. That is how we're trained to think as military people. And as Darren said, unfortunately, most of the people that are struggling in Fort McMurray have an employee's mentality. They expected that paycheck to keep coming. That's why they're in trouble. Any comments, Kim? Well, I think that was a, a great distinction. And something else, if you re-listen to this show, um, I think it was Real that talked about on the on the smaller smaller side of things um, in terms of preparation. If something like a big fire hit, is that do you have? Can you do you have like a a, a box of things that can have all of your investments, all of your your computer, have that ready to go? Anything that has your assets listed in there, things that are important that you want to take with you. So. Um, on a smaller scale, that's another another form of preparation. That's like your passport. That's yeah. crucial to have. If you don't have a pres- yep. if you don't have a passport, you're not prepared, man. <laughs> you might want to get out of the country. Anyway, next question, Melissa. Our next question comes from Trent in Missouri. Favorite book: Unfair Advantage. He says, "I know you can use education to procrastinate, but how do you know when you have enough knowledge and when it's time to take action?" Well, I'm. Pro- the problem with education is it actually teaches, especially the school system, and you know, and Kim and I were just at the TED Talks, and I was the only speaker up there, and I proudly announced I had a C-minus average. <laughs> Nobody else there had a C-minus average. <laughs> they, they were, were college like, professors, they were, they were like neuroscientists and professors of this <laughs> and all that stuff. They were straight-A students. But I came up in a family of professors. One thing about them is there's mental intelligence, which is called IQ. But the reason academics don't do, many of them don't do well, except for Dr. Kent Moores, they don't do well in the real world, is there's a thing called EQ, and it's called emotional intelligence. Emotional intelligence is three times stronger than mental intelligence, your IQ. So most college people, they stay in school because they're afraid. And that fear drives them on for higher degrees and more and more data. But it's their EQ, their emotions that paralyze them. And so that's why I loved military school and I loved the Marine Corps because it was all about EQ, PQ, physical intelligence, and SQ, spiritual intelligence. The problem with most academics is they have what most my Mexican friends say, no cojones. You know, you got to take action, man. You got to cross that line. That means you step into what Dr. Radical Pollan, off of the book Second Opinion, says you must enter the unknown. So the moment you cross that line, the moment you put, you go hard on the money, like you buy a Kim Butter first property, you go into the unknown. It is in the unknown that true learning takes place. Unfortunately, most academics hang out at school. And they never go into the unknown. They enter school at five years old, and they're going to die at 65 going out of the school. They want the government to take care of them. They're going to get a pension. They have tenure. Everything about academics is about fear, EQ. That's the problem. 
You look at our, our Fed chairman, Janet Yellen, very smart woman, but she ran the economy into the ground. And she's still afraid to make a mistake. You know, they're all afraid of saying something. So that's why I think Donald Trump and, Ber- Trump and Bernie Sanders are doing a great job today stirring things up. It takes EQ, not IQ. Comments, yeah. yeah, and you know, go to our website, richdad.com, and look up Cone of Learning, because on the Cone of Learning, it talks about the best way to learn is by doing the real thing. So for our friend here, Trent, I mean, you can you can read and go to seminars and do all this stuff, but you can start with a dollar. You know, you could go buy a share a share of stock. You can go buy a silver coin. You can do not for just, a dollar, Kim. Well, not for a dollar. Well, seventeen. What? Okay, few dollars. Um, but you can you can get that experience. Do the real thing with just a little bit of money. So I wouldn't be learning, learning, learning without taking some action. It's, it's called experience. analysis paralysis. Yeah. Like I said, the Mexicans, my Mexican friends say, no cojones, you know? <laughs> so that's really the, the issue that most people are poor. They stay in school for all their lives. They're afraid of leaving that paycheck. That and they're paycheck. afraid of the unknown. They're afraid of going into the, something tenure. that they don't know. I want job security. That's all fear. That's all EQ. No. And wasn't much. it interesting that Darren said what he said on that, that when the people that came to stay with him were mostly entrepreneurs, and he saw the distinction between the entrepreneurial mindset of we're going to make this happen, we're going to get back up, we're going to go do this, versus the employee mentality of what do I do now? I don't know what to do when no, somebody has to give me something and take care of me. So um, that mentality is crucial. Yeah, so once again, if you're up in Canada, you know, go to – you know, participate in Darren Wake's program. He trains employees to be entrepreneurs, which is probably the best training you could get yeah. right now. His website is fasttracktocashflow.com, and that's where Rial and Sheila came from, all the people that came to visit. They all chip in. They, they share. They're not afraid of losing. Most employees, fear terrifies them. It paralyzes them. So, Melissa, what's, that, what's the next question, please? Our next question comes from Steve in New York, favorite book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. He says, Robert, I was commenting on how inefficiently the place where I work is run. It seems people spend more time trying to get out of work than actually doing their work. A coworker said to me, you think like an owner. You need to think like an employee. <laughs> this was a real aha moment. Well, that's very true. I mean, there's nothing worse than an employee-run company. And most CEOs are employees. You know, they're short-term thinkers and all that. All they want is money. They don't think about building a business. One of the reasons we're in an economic crisis today is they teach you in business school not how to grow a business but how to manipulate the markets. So most CEOs today, the big companies, what they do is they borrow money on, the, on let's say, IBM's credit basis. They use that borrowed money to buy back stock, and the, the share price goes up in the air. And then since most CEOs and executives are compensated in share options, stock options, they sell out and they screw the company because they're now loaded with debt and they screw the employees and they, they screw the other investors out there. So the tragedy really lies in our academic system. They don't teach how to grow a business even in business school. They teach you how to manipulate share price to get your stock options, to cash out and screw the company, the people, the employees and all that. So that's why if you're thinking about going to school and get a good job, be a CEO, you know, I would take a course in, let's say, Christianity or something. So you find a spirit so you don't screw people just because, just to get rich. Final words, comment? <laughs> Christianity. Wow. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> well, you wanted my opinion, and that's it. You know, I mean, we've lost our moral compass. You know, as, as more and more people become unemployed, they go into the food stamp program. 
The worst thing that happens with that, there's a moral crisis going on, but there's also a spiritual crisis. There's more and more people who expect people to take care of them. 